Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. Today, my guest is Will Brooks. Will is a senior at UPS, a college that's about a mile and a half from where I live, uh, and has just taken Pierce County by storm since he came three years ago. A great infusion of young talent. Uh, All of us benefit from Will finding great birds and us getting to go see them. Uh, But before I get to that, I had a really nice day yesterday. Ken Brown, my birding buddy, and I Uh, Ken was my guest on episode two, and I talked about him on episode six. Ken Brown and I took off for Jefferson County. Uh, We are uh, county listers, not big-time county listers, but county listers, and especially since eBird came along, we get to keep track of how many species we've seen in each county. And we both have birded Jefferson County primarily in the winter, sometimes in the fall migration, but primarily in the winter. And so uh, we have not seen many of the species that breed in Jefferson County. So we decided to bird Jefferson County, more upland areas, uh, inland areas, you know, forested city parks, uh, and a little up into the mountains. Uh, So we took off. We had a terrific day. Uh, I saw 31 new species for Jefferson County. Easy to get new species in a county you haven't birded much in a season. But we had a terrific day. We started out at Anderson Lake uh, and had willow flycatchers calling everywhere. Uh, we had uh, three flycatchers there, actually. We had Pacific Slope flycatchers, willow flycatchers, and Hammond's flycatchers all singing. I even got a chance to get a recording of a Hammond's flycatcher singing. You'll hear the Hammond's flycatcher with its three-part abrupt little sound. And in the background, at times, you'll hear a warbling vireo. This is Hammond's flycatcher. We came along a family of Hutton's vireos with adults feeding young that were just really tame and photogenic. Uh, had a really nice day there. Uh, We headed out to various places, but the highlight of the day for me was going up to Mount Walker. I had never been to Mount Walker. It's only about 2,000 feet elevation, but it overlooks uh, much of Puget Sound. It has two overlooks, a north overlook and a south overlook. Uh, From the north overlook, you can get a great view of Seattle in the far distance. You can even see the Space Needle and the city skyline, and you see the Strait of Juan de Fuca. You can look up into Canada. It's just a spectacular view from there. And the birding was terrific. On the ride up, we had a chick uh, of a sooty grouse right in the road uh, and a a female that scurried over to meet as we uh, approached. Uh, We had... Uh, hermit warblers just singing and giving a great show up at the top. Uh, just a terrific day of birding. Uh, gray jay eating out of my hand. As always, it's hard not to feed a gray jay when you come across them. Camp Robert gray jays, they just are so tame and so uh, well-trained in areas where there are a lot of people that people have food, and if they pull their hand up, there'll probably be a peanut on it. And sure enough, you hold a peanut up on your hand, and they'll come land on your hand and eat the peanut, and you can look them in the eye. It's pretty cool. I know you're not supposed to feed birds, but it's hard to turn that kind of opportunity down to have a bird in your hand. Anyways, we did that. Just had a great day of it. Uh, And then today I have Will Brooks on. Will is such a nice guy, humble and what a birder. Oh my goodness, he's got ears and eyes and insight. He is a terrific birder. I've really been impressed. Bruce and I did a big day with him one time and I think about eight or ten of the species we wouldn't have seen if Will hadn't 
heard them a mile away or seen them in flight and identified them with us. It was just a terrific day. But anyway, I'm really excited to have Will Brooks on as my guest. He's going to talk about his Pierce County Big Year. He's going to talk about uh, his research. He's done research on white ground sparrows in a, in a hybrid zone between the Pugetensis race and the Gambles race and the Cascade, uh, Cascade area, Cascade Mountains area. So I hope you enjoy the Bird Banter Podcast, Episode 19, with Will Brooks. Hey, Will, thanks for coming down today. Hey, Ed, thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. It's great to have such a, a, a really good birder new, <laughs> meaning two or three years in the community, so close at UPS. It's been a great treat. Yeah, I, I've loved it up here. It's it's a definitely a different community up here, and I've been enjoying it a lot. Yeah. You spent your early years, or not that any of your years are that old, but <laughs> early years uh, in California. How'd you get started in birding? That's a good question. So I started, I think, when I was in third grade, and I got started by my dad. I think that's pretty typical. A lot of people get started by their family. And uh, for me, my dad was a birder as a kid. Um, His his uncle actually started him. So it multi-generational. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And then he stopped, I think, in college because he didn't think it was cool or something. And mm-hmm. then picked it back up when he had a sabbatical, and I joined him then, and then really just got hooked in. Very nice, very nice. So you, you were you were living, I know, in California. Where in California? Uh, in the South Bay area, so Palo Alto. Okay, around Stanford. That sort of general, I think of that as Stanford. Is am I wrong in that? Yeah, I actually grew up on the campus because my oh. dad's faculty. So. Oh wow, I, I visited. What a beautiful place. Oh, no kidding. God, yeah, that's a really nice place. Anyway, yeah. so you got started young, third grade, fourth grade, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did uh, birding progress? I mean, your dad was a birder, uh, yeah. but I'm sure you had lots of influences. Yeah, definitely. So for a long time, it was just me and my dad. And it was yeah, a great thing for us to do together. Sure. And then I really, I think, sunk my own teeth into it more in high school when I sort of, you know, you get more independent, especially getting my license was a big step in that. For sure. Um, so that's when I really took it on as my own, I'd say. Um, but a big influence for me was actually Debbie Shearwater oh, okay. um, of the Pelagic Trips. Famous ending her career as a Pelagic Trip leader this year, it sounds like. I know, like. yeah. yeah. That's, That'll be a loss. It'll be a huge loss, yeah. Her trips are incredible. It's 45 years, I think. Yeah, I yeah. talked to Alvaro Jaramillo a couple of weeks ago, and oh, he's, yeah. he also leads some Pelagic Trips. Uh, he, he mentioned that maybe several of the of the people who do that will try to pick up their volume a little bit to fill a gap, but it won't, it won't replace Debbie. Yeah. No kidding. Um, but yeah, anyways, she, I, I done a couple of trips with her, with my dad, which, you know, they're kind of mind blowing your first Blagic trips. It's altogether different, isn't it? It really is. And, uh, in doing those, Debbie actually took me on as a chummer. Um, oh, cool. Just as a way to, to support a yeah, get young you birder. on board, yeah. Get me on board. A chummer. That's a funny It threw the popcorn and the, exactly. and the fish yep. oil. Yeah. That, was, that cool. was my job for nearly a whole season. And then uh, and then she took me on as a leader. And then I was, I mean, I still am a leader, although I obviously don't Can't get out get so much. Too much yeah. But, but yeah, so that was really a, a huge part for me because I get to meet other birders and oh, Debbie's I mean, a huge force. The that. best of the best go on the Pelagic trips. Yeah, I mean, you it's get to so meet true. everyone. Yeah, all the big year birders go on her trips. So it's mm-hmm. kind of fun to, to meet all those people. Meet. So you did that for three years of high school, give or take, two or three years of high school, something like that? Uh, yes, uh, that sounds about right. I'm not sure exactly how yeah, long. Give or take, yeah. yeah okay. Any uh, particularly memorable Pelagics you went on with her? Oh man, I mean, 
I think just about every trip, you know, they're all so different and there's just so many factors with weather and water temperatures and everything. Um, there, one trip that has to stick out is this, she has a trip called the Albacore grounds trip, which is a 12 hour trip, deeper water, deeper water. And, uh, that was a September trip as well, which tends to be when the craziest things show up in California. So on that, that trip, it was also a particularly packed boat. It was like 50 people, which is a lot for one of those small boats. Um, but there's some good birders on board. So we got some incredible things, including Wanine's petrol was the, the most shocking one. And when we saw that, nobody really knew what it was digital cameras are really helpful in those situations <laughs> exactly i think it got called out as a bulwars petrol and a uh wedge-tailed shearwater and we we're pulling out field guides on the boat and discussing it and you know that's really exciting <laughs> that is exciting and finally people came to the conclusion that it was winnings on the boat but then the discussion continued online for months I'm and sure. then finally got decided yeah but that that's, was that's very cool that was a cool one that's very but, cool but also the mammals on those trips you know you'd get blue whales and yeah incredible incredible Pelagic stuff. birding is a, a whole different game and exciting in its own way oh yeah, yeah for sure Definitely. so you, you did debbie's trips you, i'm sure you met a lot of people there did mm-hmm. you develop any close uh i mean these days these days i talk like an old man these days <laughs> you know with the online community and the just the information age we live in it's it's got to be so much easier for a young birder to find other young birders or any birder to find any birder really but uh I, i'm sure you developed a community of uh colleagues uh, relatively quickly yeah definitely um yeah it's funny actually one of my closest young birder friends from california jason Liu. um i did like he was on a pelagic trip with me and Mm -hmm. i didn't even talk to him right (laughs) just sort of saw him there but then ended up meeting him another time and he's been you know one of my closest birding friends in california Um, but certainly online is a huge thing for young birders they're various young birder chat groups and um and even just through emails how i've met some other people and now sure. I've, you know i've been birding with a few young birders here in washington and yeah i think that's a great way to do it because for me as a young birder it's great to go birding with you know older people sure but, but there's there's something about going out with people your age that really just makes it so fun aside from just the birds yeah well i mean you have so much more in common and energy levels and certainly outside interests outside interests you know yeah absolutely good good so uh you uh moved to washington you're starting your fourth year at ups uh I don't know when you consider that starting in the fall or in the end of the spring, but you're a senior now at UPS. Yeah. Uh, and you've, uh, you put up a big year last year in Pierce County that was just outrageous. I mean, Bruce, <laughs> Bruce kind of has set the, set the mark every year, Bruce Labar. He was on, I think, episode number three. Bruce Labar set the, the bar for county birding in Pierce with you know big numbers that everyone thought, oh, nobody mm-hmm. will ever get, get as many as Bruce. And then you come along and... Uh, young eyes, young years, and young enthusiasm <laughs> just blew it away. Tell us about your big year in Pierce last year. Well, it was a ton of fun. It was really great. And I definitely, really starting in my freshman year, was sort of eyeing a Pierce County big year mm-hmm. um, just because it seemed like a great county to do it because we have enough of a community that things get found. And then also just the diversity of habitat here. We have incredible alpine birding and then. Uh, maybe our shorebirds are a little lacking, but we still have 
great water birds. We get most of them. Yeah. We get most of them, exactly. Yeah. So, so since you've been here, we've got even more of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, I think as a young birder and just with, you know, yeah, a lot of energy, it, I can definitely find rarities and that's such a huge part of county birding it that is. I thought I could have a pretty good shot at putting up a good number. And we did. 245 last year, wasn't it, for you and Pierce? That's, I think that's right, yeah. That, yeah, that's right. I checked this morning, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's pretty spectacular. I think Bruce had his biggest year ever with, uh, I think, 235 or something like that, and uh, that's, and a, that's a great year. I had yeah. 229. I thought, oh my goodness. I thought I, So many years I thought getting 200 was out of, outside my realm of capabilities, so I felt <laughs> great about that, and uh, yeah, of course, a whole bunch of those were birds you found first. <laughs> <laughs> Ebird, Ebird to the rescue in our little yeah. uh, text hotline sort of thing we use. Exactly. Yeah, that's been fun to do. Yeah. So how, how do you go about thinking about, like during a big year last year, you found a good number of birds in places that most of us just don't go. Uh, and so you, you've got to have a strategy. How do you think about that? What, what goes through your mind when you're saying, well, I think maybe I should go to blank and blank a place and look for such and such a bird that nobody else ever finds, but I bet I can. How, how do you go through that process? <laughs> what goes through your mind? Well, first of all, I think for me, my maybe my favorite part of birding is just exploring. So I like trying to find those new spots, and I spend a lot of time just going to like really crappy spots just trying to find a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I probably preferentially go to spots that are worse over known spots that are good just because it's it's fun to go somewhere different Mm -hmm. um but in terms of thinking about what i'm going to find and thinking about where to go to find those ebird is a huge thing just once i get an idea of what's around um, and especially coming to a new place like washington i i know the birds in california well but i don't really know it up here so just looking at those those bar charts and looking at county lists for neighboring counties, like King County is pretty well fleshed out in terms of what mm-hmm. they're, what they've found. So, you know, for me right now, I'm thinking about Eastern Kingbirds a lot because up in King County, they get them up at Marymore and everything, right. but we, we don't have those spots. And then yeah. it's just thinking about what spots might be the same as those, what might be equivalent. Um, and then also it's always fun just to, try areas that I know have potential for something really rare and almost always it doesn't happen but occasionally it does um like last year I think probably my highlight was the black-headed gull um yeah at the McNeil Street Overlook and that was great that was fun and uh and that one was actually on my mind as a potential one when I showed up there along with little gull just mm-hmm. because that's the time of year that those rare gulls show up most especially in the northeast um so you know, there's a lot of Bonaparte's gulls. It's always worth looking. So, yeah, so when the bonies come in, other stuff comes. The Jaegers come. And, mm-hmm, exactly. uh, wasn't it? Was it last year or the year before that you found the long tail? It was last year you got the long tailed Jaeger, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, that was my birding highlight of the county year. Oh my goodness, that was awesome. <laughs> that was really awesome. Yeah, Bruce has got the funny story of. Uh, I think he told it on 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 the podcast episode. Uh, he had been on a project that day. And uh-huh. was coming back from Westport when he yeah. when he got your text about the long tailed Jaeger. And he right. had the other two Jaegers on his pelagic. <laughs> so he pulls across pulls across the bridge and zips into Point Defiance and you and I are standing there and we uh, all we all see the long tailed Jaeger. So he got the, the Jaeger trifecta, just not in the same place. Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. That was yeah. a good story. That was a great bird too. So fun to see, like you know, 
obviously I'm keeping an eye out for other Jaegers and especially on a stormy day like that, who knows what could end up in the sound. And then yeah. to see this like perfect male long tail Jaeger. beautiful adult streamers just zipping on right close. I mean, really close. the parasitics are usually way out there, you know, at the scope. You can tell they're a Jaeger and you know they're probably parasitic, but they're way, way, way out there a lot of the times. And this yeah. guy just zoomed right under our noses almost. It was spectacular. Yeah. And two of them. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, you had the you had, you had the juvenile too. I mm-hmm. saw that, but I wasn't so confident. But, yeah, that's uh, fair. Yeah. Anyway, uh, really cool, really yeah, cool. Uh, so you so you use eBird. You think of habitats. I think of time of year. Obviously, you look mm-hmm. at neighboring counties. What's been seen in the past? What's been being seen? Those are the sort of things that go through your mind. And yeah. Do you use Google Earth at all? I've heard of people using that to kind of scout out. Well, there's a wet area that nobody ever goes to. I do, yeah. And yeah, that's the thing I forgot to mention is I definitely use uh, Google Earth. Um, Those satellite images are a lot of help, um, especially for sort of agricultural fields or sort of really noticeable habitat differences. Mm -hmm. Um, Which ones are wet? (laughs) Which ones are wet, exactly. Um, Like something that I just recently found is uh, thinking about uh, valleys going through the Cascades, just like mm-hmm. you know, the upper Skagit valleys, those get right. incredible rare birds that get lost in the mountains and oh, then sure. zero in on those open areas. And I've sort of been hoping for similar things here in Pierce County. And obviously it's not going to be to the same degree. Yeah. Um, but Ashford seems like a pretty good one. And I've had Western Kingbird and Lewis's Woodpecker. But I recently tried, there's this airstrip up uh, kind of near Greenwater on the north side of Mount okay. Rainier. Okay. And that's where I recently had a lark sparrow. I saw that. I've never even been there. So I'm yeah. excited about checking that place out. I think it's definitely worth checking out, especially on, you know, that, that was a stormy day as well. Mm-hmm. Bad weather gets good birds. It does. Always. It does. For the, for the people, for those of those birders who are not uh, afraid to get their feet wet or exactly. you know, <laughs> get their, their hat blown away. Yeah, exactly. Good, good. So, Will, you're going to UPS, and you uh, you did you started your white crown sparrow study last summer. Uh, mm-hmm. First of all, how did you think of applying for that? Tell us about the Young Birder uh, Fund and that sort of thing, and then and then about the project. Absolutely. So that that started just through the summer research program at UPS. Okay. And I knew that I wanted to do a project on birds, mm-hmm. and I also. And particularly interested in hybrids and vocalization. So I was looking for something like that. And there's actually quite a bit about that because of song recognition is such a huge part of breeding and interbreeding that that mm-hmm. becomes a pretty interesting question. Right. So I was sort of trying to figure out a good topic. I was looking into gulls even, thinking about their vocalizations. But uh, it was suggested to me by uh, Dennis Paulson, actually. Uh-huh. Um, and Gary and Peter at the Slater Museum as well sort of came up with this idea of the white crown sparrows because there's this brand new overlap zone between these two subspecies in the Cascades. Okay. And that's so new that we don't know whether they interbreed there. So, well, for those people who are not so familiar with white crown sparrows, forget about the subspecies. Just sure. lay that out for us. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, white crown sparrows have five different subspecies, and these are variations that are geographical variations and they actually do seem to preferentially breed with themselves so they behave almost like species um, but they can still very freely hybridize hybridize along their borders along Mm -hmm. their geographic borders right 
and they also have consistent song differences and plumage differences, but particularly song. Um, so the one that we're all very familiar with here is the Pigitensis. And oh, me, pretty, pretty me. The, exactly, yeah. yeah. And they also are very brown birds, yellow bills, a shorter primary projection. Okay. And that's interesting just because they migrate a much shorter distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also it may have to do with more dense coastal habitat. But, but it's especially primary, project, primary projection is a good way of seeing how that. far something migrates. Sure. All birds. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the Pugitensis, right? That's the Pugitensis. Then there's that, and that's part of the coastal population, which also includes Natalia and California. It's brown, mm-hmm. short primary projection. Then there's the interior population, which includes uh, Gambolai, Leucophorus, and uh, another one. I forget the other that's one. That's fine. Um, Ours is Gambolai. Yeah, Orientha. Orientha, that's it. Um, and Gambolai. It stands all the way down to Washington, but on the east side of the Cascades. Um, and they have a very large range going all the way up to Alaska. And they tend to be very gray, um, differences in backstreaking. They have an orange bill, longer primaries, and they have also very distinct song. And so the Gambolai and the Pugitensis have just recently, within the past 30 years or so, expanded up the each slope of the Cascades and now are actually living in the same area along the Cascade Crest. So- evolutionarily very recently 30 years is not very recent sure. yeah okay yeah and they've been separated is that from clear cuts or highways or what do they think caused that i mean both of those are very good options it's been thrown out clear cuts for sure also potentially burns they like very sort of old burned habitat when the huckleberries start coming back in and there's open okay. perches for them to sing from we should um, be getting more of those it seems like gosh. we definitely will yeah. <laughs> so um yeah they've They've recently started overlapping, and they've been separated for tens to maybe even millions of years since the yeah. late Pleistocene. So, so the mountain kind of got in the way, basically. One side of yeah. the mountain, the other side of the mountain. And now, with various reasons, there's a path back and forth over the mountains. They can get to a hybrid zone. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Um, so that's what I was interested in looking into last summer is... Do they hybridize? And then also, how do those differences in song play into that? So with that, there's you can do a playback experiment. So much like in birding, playback, you're playing recordings of songs to so, try and draw in So you're in a really bird. doing playback or are you playing recordings? I mean, the old days, playback, you used to record a song, you'd play it back to get the bird to come in. But you're using fixed recordings. Fixed recordings, okay. that's right, yeah. Um, so you're doing not just playing the recording, but you're actually carefully taking down all of the behavioral variables. So those include the number of songs and calls it's producing or the number of times it flies. And then also um, estimating mean distance. So every 10 seconds I'd estimate about how many meters away from the speaker it is. Okay. Um, And so this is a great way of getting aggressive response for these males. Um, And aggressive response has been shown as a pretty good comparison for reproductive response in females. There have been studies showing okay. that those tend to so correlate. So ag- aggressive male protection of his territory mm-hmm. is has a direct correlation with female attraction to the song. Is that what you're saying? Yes. That, okay. And it all sort of goes into this idea of recognition. Just how much does it recognize that song as its own species versus something other right. than that. Right. Um, in this case, it's its own subspecies. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, so we did those up in the Cascades, and the methods that we used is for each male, we would do two trials, one with the same subspecies and one with the different subspecies. So okay. 
we'd have one pugitensis male and then get both pugitensis and gambolite response from okay. it. Um, and so in doing this for a bunch of different sparrows, we got a general idea of how they discriminate between the two subspecies. Right. Um, and it was very interesting. The results didn't match quite what we were expecting. That's always the best. It's great. Yeah. So pugitensis sort of did what we expected. It was way more aggressive towards pugitensis than gambolai. And okay. That, you know, makes perfect sense. But Gamble actually did not seem to discriminate between they, the two They songs. would respond almost as well or just about as well to a pugitensis recording as to a Gamble recording. Exactly. Okay. Um, and that's really surprising. In most any study, um, there's at least some difference in response. And it may be partially we had only... Uh, I think 18 individual birds for gambolai. So that's not a ton. It's still in significance range, um, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, it's not a huge it's not sample. A thousand, yeah. Exactly. So if we had a thousand, I'm sure there would have been some difference, but, um, but it clearly seemed to be less dramatic than pugitensis. Okay. And so that was surprising and it got us thinking a little bit. And what we, what our idea is, is that, when you look at the songs of Pugitensis and Gambolai, there's some major differences in dialect structure. Okay. So Good. dialects, yeah. Help us out. Dialect. Yeah. Tell me, tell me what you mean by that. I read your article in WAS, the WAS, uh, yeah. whatever it is, WAS newsletter, and I, I had trouble understanding that part of it. So help Absolutely. me. Yeah. So dialects, just like in people, you know, the regional variants in the, the voice and how they sound. So with Pugitensis... In very distinct regional areas, you can have very conserved song differences. So if you go into one particular area, you will have only one song variant, and they all do it, and they will even discriminate between that. So they actually will respond more to their own dialect than the other. Okay. Um, and these differences typically are in like the order of phrases. White crown sparrows have very distinct phrases, and mm-hmm. so they might throw in a trill at the end and then, you know, a complex note syllable in the second phrase or whatever. Um, and these are, there's, I think, about 18 of them now or so. In, uh, just of, in the Pugitensis? In the Pugitensis, yeah. Wow, okay. along, And that that's from Washington all the way down to Northern California. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are very distinct. And along those borders, they are very sharp line and they discriminate between those okay in gambolai there are no real dialects there are some regional variants if you listen to a bird in washington it's going to sound a little different than those in alaska but within a particular area you can have multiple different song variants in adjacent territories so the neighbors can have very different strong differences between you know the relative pitch of their phrases the pattern of you know, okay, a particular so syllable. by saying not having a dialect, you mean there's just a whole broad range of similar sounds that aren't geographically isolated. Exactly. I, I get it. Now I understand. I, yeah. You said they were they didn't differentiate. I thought, well, they probably all sound exactly the same. Well, no, they don't all sound exactly they the same. Yeah. It's just that the the birds on this side of the river don't necessarily have a, a, a separate phrasing than the birds on the other side of the river. Exactly. Yeah. And on a one side of the river, you can have a bunch of different ones that are sort of just a, a grab bag of whatever okay. gambolai song you now, want. Now it makes more sense to me. Good. Yeah. Um, and so if they have such a broad range of songs, it seems likely that they'd be able to recognize a greater range of other subspecies as their own. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that's our idea right now. And there have been some other papers that suggest similar things. Um, one showed that a bird with a larger range of pitch of songs, so a greater variation in pitch, mm-hmm. can recognize more um, subspecies than one with a narrower range. So okay. it seems like the, the range of variation of a song can affect how much it recognizes other songs. Okay, um, cool. So that's cool. very cool. So, so you got that far. I know you're continuing with White Ground Sparrow work this summer. What, what, how are you expanding on that? What are your plans? Yeah, so this summer I'm doing genetics as well as more playback experiments just to try and build that up more. Right, get um, more, a bigger body of data. Exactly. And also having that paired with genetics could get some very interesting information about how hybrids respond because that's the other part is that it looks like they do hybridize. Mm-hmm. Um, How would I, you recognize a hybrid? Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> the The main thing is there were birds with intermediate songs, which it's important to be careful with that because they could be, they have a very strong learning component in their songs. So instead of just being passed down genetically, they learn yeah, them I from mean, their, their neighbors. And isn't parents. that sort of what makes a songbird? I mean, yes. It, yeah. Yeah. Aussie passerines. Yeah. 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 Um, so they they do learn their songs, but these birds also look to be intermediate in plumage. Um, and there are particular characteristics of their songs that are very consistent, like the introductory whistle note um, is a strong indicator of subspecies, and they actually use that the length of that note to differentiate between the two subspecies. Okay. Um, and those are incredibly consistent. And the birds that I found, they stayed within the same you know, a couple hundredths of a second. Wow. Um, except for actually two gamboli were way closer to pugitensis, and those were ones in pugitensis range, which is another sort of interesting element, and I'm not sure what to think of that yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the hybrid songs that I found were smack in the middle of the two expected okay. ranges. So it seems like cool. they're really intermediate in every did, way. Did you come across hybrid nests, you know, the, a parent of each each subspecies? I did, yeah. There were two mixed pairs, um, and they both had a male gambolite and a female pugitensis, which is interesting because what we're sort of focusing on this summer is seeing whether the difference in recognition actually causes a asymmetric gene flow. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is that if it's gambolite that's less selective, then they may be more willing to breed with a pugitensis male. And mm-hmm. that might mean that all the hybrid offspring have, if you go back through their lineage, the initial parents that caused the initial hybridization would be gambolite on the female side. Right. So, right. so that's what we'd expect. But these mixed pairs seem to have female pugitensis. So, so- so we'll Tell see. me if I'm way. I'm sure you know a lot more about genetics and stuff than I. I know that some genetic studies are done using mitochondrial DNA, which all mm-hmm. come from the female. Yes. And some are done with nuclear DNA, which come from equally from relatively equally from both parents. So, how does that play into looking at hybrids? Yeah, that's a that's a great segue. So I'm. What I'm doing on my own in terms of genetics is getting that mitochondrial DNA because just purely looking at the directional gene flow question, if it is the female gambolai, then they're going to be passing their mitochondrial DNA onto the hybrids. Right. So all those intermediate offspring should all have gambolai uh, mitochondrial exactly. DNA. 
Um, and that would be really cool. If we that's cool that. for one generation. Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. Um, and those mitochondrial DNA are not changed ever in their offspring, so they would be passed through the entire hybrid lineage, um, right. unless a hybrid happens to breed with a female, female putatensis. Yeah, exactly. um, so, but there still would be an expected greater amount of gambolite mitochondrial DNA right. in those hybrids. Right. So that's one thing that we're, we're interested to see if that happens. Uh-huh. Um, and then later on we'll do nuclear dna as well and so that should give an idea of um how much dna is from one subspecies versus the other um and there are a bunch of other really interesting things that you can look into like even what particular regions of dna are passed on like maybe one particular gene penetrates deeper into the hybrids from one subspecies because that's advantageous so you can get into really incredible evolutionary questions through that i'm sure you can so i'm excited for that that is cool that is cool. Uh, yeah. do, you've got one more year at, uh, at uh, UPS. Yeah. Uh, do you have uh, plans from there? What, what do you think you want to do with your career? I mean, it's probably appropriate to ask at this stage. I wouldn't want to ask a 14-year-old. But <laughs> you know, going into your senior year in college, you're probably starting to get some career thoughts together at least. Yeah, definitely. So I think I'll definitely stay on the evolutionary path. That's really interesting to me. And also, birds are such a great evolutionary model that it would be fun to continue to study birds, although I'm open to other things for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I'm going to grad school eventually, um, but I think I'm going to take probably two years off and do just some field tech jobs. So just mm-hmm. trying to get more experience doing research. And also it, it's sort of a perfect time to just do that. It is do a perfect that. time, yeah. And I would love to spend some time working in the field. Um, the little bit that I've done already has been great. There, so. Yeah, talk to Charlie Wright. He's yeah. kind of making a career of that. He's done some unbelievable things in yeah. Alaska and on islands and things. So Yeah, that's yeah, so cool. I'm sure, sure you'll find lots of opportunities. You've, uh, you've sort of paid your dues. You know, call it. <laughs> I mean, really, you've got a body of work. I mean, that's yeah. a great uh, resume builder for that. You're also an art student. I am, yeah. I'm an yeah. art minor. Art minor. Tell me about that. I I, I was married to an artist and an oh. art family for many years, and so although I have little uh, artistic talent, I've been dragged around to many uh, art sort of things and and have some some aptitude for thinking about it at least. What what do you like to do, and how does that play into all of this? Well, I think. Art science people are pretty common, actually. It always surprises me how many people have that, you know, double interest. Um, I am particularly interested, first of all, in photography, and that definitely stemmed from birding, um, but I enjoy it from the art side as well. Um, but in college, I actually, actually have gotten into sculpture. Oh, okay. Um, and I, I've always been sort of a maybe crafty, maybe... Um, I, I like building things, really, is what it comes down like to. Like do stuff with your hands. Exactly. Um, and I I think it really also plays into my more sort of analytical strengths, um, which I think can be sort of unusual in art students. Um, so I definitely sort of combine art and science uh, when I do it. Um, so I've done a good amount of metalworking, um, especially, I think it was my sophomore year, I took a, a class in metalworking, made some large steel sculptures which is Very just cool. cool to work with yes um and i'm not sure you know where i'll take that from here but i know that i enjoy doing it you know i my mom's an artist and oh i didn't know that yeah okay. and i'm dating an artist so i definitely have a 
an art background as well. And it, Neat. It's another way to express myself outside of burning, which it I think is, is good, yeah. too. So I, I recently interviewed Shaneen Finnegan, who's a career-long artist and has done That's some great. fabulous art stuff, but is also just a ridiculously good burger yeah uh, do you know shanine at all i i don't personally know her okay. but i know, I know she, of her she's, yeah yeah she's incredibly talented woman that's awesome uh, so that was really cool uh anyway uh so you've got a relative career path planned you've got, had some fun uh do you have any uh fun things coming up birding wise uh, with the next few months other than going to the mountains a lot <laughs> well let's see i'm actually going to the American Ornithological Conference up in Alaska. Oh, wow. um, so I'll actually be presenting the White Crown Sparrow stuff up there. Very cool. Where is it in Anchorage? Or? It is in, is in Anchorage, yeah. Unfortunately. Could be in Nome, <laughs> could it? No. I know. They, they're they running some trips out to Nome, but they are pricey, yeah. and I'm not going to yeah. do that. But it's all right. I'll, maybe I'll make it up to the mountains and look for some weed ears. Or you can get some really cool tarmians. places and rent a car from Anchorage. You can yeah. get down the Kenai Peninsula pretty easily. Yeah, that's Homer cool and things like that. So yeah, so that's one that's one thing. And then, other than that, I don't really have any particular plans other than just you know continuing birding locally and uh, coming up this fall. Obviously, I'll probably try and make it out to the coast a little bit and sure and try for some of the really crazy stuff cool that can stuff. show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Well, well, thanks for coming down. Thanks for coming to visit with me today. It's been really fun talking to you. Do you have any words of wisdom or things you want to pass on or (laughs) shout-outs for any important causes or anything like that? Uh, Let's see. That's a good question. I mean, (laughs) not not Put you on the spot here. Sorry about that. (laughs) No problem. Um, I mean, shout-out definitely to Jason Liu and Jason Vassallo, as well as Adam Crutcher. Those are three of my favorite young birders and they do some very cool stuff so yeah good yeah good well put in a word for me maybe i'll have some of them on as guests they sound like they'd be fun yeah good great good well thanks again will for coming down uh will brooks terrific birder super nice guy student at ups uh thanks again yeah thanks for having me take care bye-bye well, that was fun. Uh, Will is a super nice guy. Uh, he's also an artist, as you heard on the podcast, and it was fun showing him around my condo afterwards. Uh, my late wife, Kay, uh, was an artist and had from an artistic family, her, brother, her brother-in-law, my brother-in-law, uh, and her mom, both artists, and I have quite a, a nice collection of stuff from both of them and some other artists, and Will, I think, uh, tolerated, if at least, and I think enjoyed... Uh, getting a look at some of my art. So that was fun too. So be sure to leave a review uh, on the iTunes store, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast feeds. I really like to get your feedback and it helps uh, the podcast be recognized by the platform. Until next time, good birding, good day. <laughs>